There have been loopholes in nearly every edition of D&D. And these loopholes are often the target of munchkins, or players who exploit any and every advantage in a rule set. Obviously, the DM has the ultimate authority to allow such exploitation, but these cracks in the rules can still cause headaches. We'll walk through a series of examples and discuss the implications this week on Dungeons and Tangents. Hi, I'm Robert. I'm Jake. And I'm Eric. And today we are discussing uh, a topic that Jake brought to us, which I think is a great topic because it's something that Robert and I wouldn't have come up with ourselves. Uh, and that is munchkin mechanics or loopholes in the game. At least I think that I think that covers or that's mm-hmm. a, a good synopsis of the, the topic. Uh, yeah. But since Jake's kind of the, the main uh, the, the person who brought the topic to us, I'll let him either explain or talk about it, or we're, we're just going to jump in left and right, and we're going to do what we normally do. All right. Well, I'll, uh, I'll start us off with th- some, uh, some definition here. Uh, to me, munchkin mechanics were always rules lawyering without the assholery. Um, it's <laughs> really just anything that... Uh, it's taking advantage of a loophole, like you said. Uh, some of them are larger scale engineering projects. Uh, some of them are quirky one-offs during combat. So I think my favorite example of this entire thing is what's colloquially known as the peasant railgun. Um, so the the setup to the peasant railgun goes something like this: uh, you get ten copper pieces to a silver piece, and ten silver pieces to a gold piece. And in the vast majority of uh, D&D editions, it only takes one copper piece to hire a peasant for a day. Now, the thing is, if you have a thousand gold pieces laying around, and you can find yourself a hundred thousand peasants who are willing to be hired, (laughs) well, all of those peasants are able to take up five square feet of space. So what you do is you, you get your tiny little army of, uh, of peasants, and you line them all up one by one, and then you hand the, the farthest away one a rock, and you have him hand it person to person all the way down the line. And then you have your ranger, someone with a nice high deck score, a good lucky attribute, who uh, then throws the rock. Now here's the thing, is 100,000 peasants taking up five feet of space each gives us 500,000 feet, <laughs> which puts us in the ballpark of uh, 50 miles? <laughs> am, I, am I breaking that down about right? Uh, and the thing is, if you have increased speed from um, zero to 50 miles in less than a second, since free actions take no time, you have, in fact, invented a railgun. Um, <laughs> now, mechanically, it's, it's admittedly up to the DM's discretion. Uh, the first time I ever experienced this, it was used as a breaching technique against a castle wall. Uh, where the the ranger would just get handed rock after rock, uh, going supersonic speeds. <laughs> now, how they handed a supersonic rock to the ranger is slightly beyond me in terms of uh, the actual handoff. Uh, but I think this really nicely shows that the large scale mechanics of D and D don't necessarily work when you're looking at the small scale mechanics of what a free action is supposed to be. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I have thoughts. You have. To, I want to hear your thoughts. First of all, who thought this up? <laughs> and are they looking for a job? 
I believe it was a fellow named Bill Adkins who okay. uh, I originally uh, saw this done by. Because uh, at the very least, I'd like to interview them. <laughs> <laughs> I think that it takes a lot of genius to kind of do that. There's a fundamental breakdown. As a DM, I think I would allow it. Mm-hmm. Really? As long as oh. as it sped up, every peasant who grabbed the rock had to take damage from the rock. <laughs> <laughs> and the if, hypersonic if, if equivalent of boil an anthill. If it <laughs> survives, then you're good to go. If you're able to, to, to hire some peasants with, you know, 300,000 hit die <laughs> handle that transition for one copper piece, well then, yeah, you broke the system, you deserve that. Um but I, I, that, to me, feels like a wish type scenario where, as a mm-hmm. DM, you can almost punish somebody for... I don't want to punish somebody for being creative, uh, but yeah. it's always important to be like, yeah, I can be creative, too. And <laughs> <laughs> you just slaughtered 300,000 peasants, and uh, you're a mass murderer, and uh, yeah, so... Uh, but initially, I, my first thought, that's genius, and I love it. <laughs> and the trouble that I've found is that you can allow it once, but I always like yeah. to have a nice breakdown with my characters afterwards and tell them, if you ever try this again, <laughs> rocks will fall, everyone will die. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I'm, when I DM, I, I get maybe a little over-obsessed with reality. So if some, somebody tried that with me, I would really struggle with it because on one hand, I, I do want to encourage creativity, but on the other hand, I want to encourage uh, believability. Mm-hmm. And, and those are really at odds with one another in that scenario. Absolutely. Um, so that's more of the uh, kind of grand engineering scale, as I like <laughs> to call it. Um, the other example that I have that's near and dear to my heart is uh, what I call the arrows of astral annihilation. Um, now, I originally saw this in a schematic on the interweb where... Um, what you do is you take a, uh, a portable hole, since, you know, you put a portable hole in a bag of holding, everything in a 10-foot radius of that particular event is immediately sucked into the astral plane, never to be seen or heard from again. Well, maybe. Depends on the DM. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> maybe heard from later. The, uh, the clever bit that I saw is that someone had designed with a classic engineering uh, schematic an arrow that would collapse upon itself uh, when it hit a target so that your scrap of a portable hole would fall into a tiny bag of holding (laughs) and eliminate whatever you hit it with. Now, here's the trouble is, you know, I was a young DM at the time and I wanted my players to have an interesting magic item. So I gave them two astral arrows of annihilation. (laughs) Now, the problem is they did no identification checks. They didn't even try and figure out what these contraption arrows were. They wrote contraption arrow on the character sheet and then quietly went about their business looting the rest of the bodies. <laughs> Five sessions later, <clears throat> my party's being chased through the woods and they come, they're in a clearing. Uh, there's paladins after them and one of them gets pulled off into the night by one of these paladins uh, and he's in a tussle for his life with about four of them. And he's on like four hit points. He's about to go down and he goes, what do I have on me? And I go, I don't know, man. Check your character sheet. He goes, oh, a contraption arrow. Don't know what it does. We're going to give it a shot. <laughs> now, the trouble was, of course, that two of the paladins were right on the edge of this astral bubble. So he took the arrow out and just stabbed the guy who was grappling him. 
<laughs> which warped him and his two attackers into the astral realm and just cleaved the other two in half. Uh, <laughs> there's a bright flash of light. The party sees giant, like, old-growth trees toppling down as chunks of them are removed by this particular blast. Um, and then me and Luke, the player, had a nice one-on-one session later that week to try and figure out what the fallout of this is. Um <laughs> Now, what I liked about those arrows is that they gave the party a very unique, tangible tool that's also a very limited resource. Um, and I had a couple, you know, big, bad, evil guys uh, in mind who would have careful countermeasures uh, put in place for such an event as this. Um, so, granted, that was me as a DM being a munchkin with mechanics. But that that came from an older... Uh kind of question that that i don't know when that started but the the portable hole in a bag of holding or any sort of um pocket dimension in another pocket dimension i think that's the the core mechanic Mm -hmm. uh that started in like uh second edition didn't it i'm not sure when it started it's been around for a while i want to play the new view so bad (laughs) (laughs) um i feel like i gotta get that out now (laughs) while it's fresh uh, like as soon as possible. <laughs> um, yeah, and we've actually used that mechanic. We, we did. Uh, you wanted to get rid of a character you were playing. We've mentioned this before. Oh, yeah. Whatever. You wanted to get rid of a character you were playing. I wanted to get rid of some stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and it just happened to be that you, there was a bag of holding. You could cast a rope trick. Yep. Which pulls a rope out of a pocket dimension. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you did one and the other created the the explosion it destroyed your well transported your character to the astral plane and destroyed uh artifact yeah an artifact oh right it was the, that was the whole point uh, yeah it was the um what was it the, the, the book of vile darkness the book of vile darkness <laughs> <laughs> and the portal between uh one place and another yep that's right so three things destroyed at once and it simplified just everything about that game because there were there was too much stuff on the other side of that portal that book of vile darkness was just going to cause trouble for me as a dm as well as for the characters it was things were getting out of hand yeah Yeah. so next what's what's next on the (laughs) on the hit parade um i guess my uh my, my big thing in this is uh a description of combat um specifically that I've had a lot of games that turned into, all right, you roll, now they roll, now you roll, now they roll, and it's just a waiting game of who's going to get lucky or who's going to run out of hit points first. Um, And I really try and encourage my players to have dynamic combat and to have very exciting, environmentally um, inclusive uh, actions that they're taking. Uh, if if I put them in a room with a chandelier and someone doesn't swing on that chandelier, <laughs> I feel like my players have done wrong by me. <laughs> and that chandelier is coming down on their head. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Um, so where I really kind of encourage munch, Munchkin mechanics for anybody listening to this is particularly as a DM, um, where let's be real we've we've all done a lot of combat down the years um so have your goblins come out of nowhere swinging on chandeliers and dropping chandeliers on the party because the party will forever remember the night of you know chandelier drops or whatever you want (laughs) to name it in your uh, in your own internal mythos um because i feel like there's a lot of mechanics that can be a little bit softer than they're written 
and mm. it'll make for a significantly more memorable adventure as if you're uh, keeping a careful eye on not letting it be game-breaking or overly repetitive, but also allowing your players to have the creative freedom mechanically that they need to explore the world and warp it to their will. So that's... I mean, these loopholes are, are effectively... They're found out because players are playing with the mechanics. They're getting into mm-hmm. the game, and they're, they're like, I want to see how crazy this can get. And something like introducing characters to a third dimension, or players to the third dimension of swinging from chandeliers, that's, that's, that's something that's unique to D&D. Mm-hmm. And it's a good, that's a good entry to, oh, you didn't know that like, there, the mechanics can be more creative than just uh, roll dice, hit thing, roll more dice, hit thing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And the more your monsters and the more your world encourages that behavior, uh, the more your players will get into it. Um, yeah. Now, the challenge that I run into on a pretty regular basis is that, especially with new players, um, if they haven't kind of gotten bored of combat, for lack of a better term, mm. if you're not wise about how you judiciously apply these ideas, they think that combat is then just a, a free-for-all of whatever mechanic they can come up with. And that's yeah, kind right. of the danger of using it too frequently. I feel like this touches on something we've talked about before, uh, and it keeps coming up, which is I, I feel like there's a, a very specific criteria of when to encourage it and when to discourage it, and that is mm-hmm. when the the munchkinness is utilizing the mechanic to facilitate the story or the narrative mm-hmm. instead of it's using the narrative to justify the mechanic because <laughs> um, yeah. they feel they can feel very much the same but the the story <coughs> the sto- story should be the point of D or role-playing game right mm-hmm. otherwise you're boiling that mechanic that combat down to just pure math yeah um, and like you say it's just it's just a, a function of attrition who runs out or who gets unlucky first mm-hmm. right um or if they're going to use this mechanic and say, I'm going to use this to uh, create this narrative that's super interesting mm-hmm. and then be rewarded for that, that you'd encourage that as opposed to discourage the other. Mm-hmm. Um, and that seems to keep popping up in our different episodes. Yeah. And I guess that's... Um, well, D&D is unique in that a mechanic like... Well, there was another example you gave that's similar to the, the peasant railgun. You, you called it uh, Tarask crowdsourcing. <laughs> Yeah, I got to know more about this. <laughs> uh, so I, uh, I read an essay online, um, and the, the, the question was, can a, I believe it was a level six, right. level eight, uh, some Something lower like than expected yeah. level uh, party defeat a Tarasque? Okay. Uh, and the most effective way to do this was to, instead of spending any money on equipment or magic items or anything, you take all of your money and hire as many peasants as you can, get as many bows as you can, get as many arrows as you can, and you take your giant crowd of uh, peasants <laughs> and you have them all shoot arrows at this giant Godzilla-esque creature. Uh, the problem is very, very few of them are going to hit because they're all just god-awful with bows yeah. and arrows. But a non-zero percentage of them are going to get 20s every time. Oh, uh, and right. as long as you spend all of your money on <laughs> <laughs> these, uh, these items, you'll have enough 20s rolled every turn to break it down to the point that its regeneration doesn't matter. And you can just kind of keep it at bay. So as long as you have a giant hole you can throw it in and just have your, your people shoot up into the air, you're rolling. Um, 
So yeah, that's uh, it's, it's a way to crowdsource Tarasque slaying is hiring uh, <laughs> peasants. Reminds me of something I haven't thought about in a long time. Second edition used to have a a morale attribute. Mm-hmm. Oh, was that, that for armies? It was for individual uh, creatures. So oh. in the actual uh, monsters compendium, there'd be a morale thing. I remember it specifically because I could never figure out how it worked. Um, like a lot of second edition, I could never figure out how it worked. Um, but there should be some kind of a, an understanding that if you do that and you have some epic creature come out of the ground, like a lot of people are just going to turn around and run. Like they just oh, don't want any yeah. part of what's going to go on here. You know, that makes more sense. I, that reminds me of a game, a video game I played, but it was old school enough that it uh, could practically be translated to, to tabletop easily. And that was Sid Meier's pirates. Mm. I don't know if mm-hmm. you ever played that. One of, considered one of the greatest video games ever. Was that on the Macintosh? My version was on the Apple II, but I'm sure mm. it, I'm sure they had a copy on the Mac. Um, and they did crowd um, combat in this funky way. It was like you you had a number of people that was in your uh, group, and a number of people well, on your boat, and your boat takes over the opposing boat, or you jump onto the opposing boat, or they're side by side or whatever but the entire combat is represented by you and the other captain dueling and you see the morale of the other team uh, or yeah other team uh, is represented by how well you're doing at sword fighting so you get a but you get a boost for how many people you have so it's it anyway I, where how did I get onto that morale morale, morale. <laughs> You could you could step onto that boat with one person, just yourself, and be against a thousand on the other side. Chances are you're going to lose. But if you're a great swordsman and you can take down the captain, you win. Uh, but you could have a thousand and be shitty at, at sword fighting, and your your troops are going to be uh, I, don't, I don't give a shit about this and run the other way, and you lose. It occurs to me that we're talking multiple scenarios here where somebody. How will they do it? Come upon a thousand bodies that are going to do it. Like <laughs> and it seems to me like uh, breaching a castle, defeating a Tarasque, taking over a pirate ship. The real story is it could be an entire campaign of going around and recruiting these thousand That's true. people. That could be an, an awesome campaign of trying to figure it like. Yeah, well, by all means, come with us. It'll be okay. Don't worry about it. And then <laughs> maintaining that morale throughout, like, I'm thinking it could be two years of trying to get a thousand people together. <laughs> that would be a fascinating campaign. And it seems like it'd be an endless opportunity of ways to mess with your players. <laughs> so I've got two, two examples. One that you mentioned before. Uh, well, we'll just start with that. When you said, I think it was the economy of salt. Oh yeah. I believe it was, uh, was it first edition, second edition? I don't there even was, know. Uh, some super OG version of D&D had salt equal to gold, pound for pound. And they also put a spell in there. You could summon, like, a salt wall that I think was, like, 8 by 10 or something. <laughs> it turns out that if you can summon 8 by 10 feet of gold, <laughs> you just go to a large city, cash that bad boy in, and you are rolling in dosh. <laughs> nice. And that, that sounds like something that, as a DM, I'd... I'd be really hard pressed to to discount to to push mm-hmm. back on that 
and that feels like something that was actually broken in the game. Yeah. Because, you know, a wizard shows up and says, blam, there's a bunch of salt. Well, salt's rare enough that people want to pay for it. I guess being a wizard is amazing, and you can just print money. And what's beautiful about D&D is there's so much freedom as the DM that you can accept or reject any of these proposals kind of as you see fit. And, you know, there is, of course, the aspect of being careful socially with making sure your group is happy with you. Yeah. But by the same token, uh, you can allow or disallow these types of uh, shenanigans and tomfoolery. Kind of as you will. And it, uh, I feel like it gives the game both significantly better and significantly worse balance than other uh, more rules-intense games. And it, I, th- I feel like it really gets at... Uh, like, there are certain kinds of players that are going to be munchkins, mm-hmm. that are going to be all about min-maxing, and when they find that little weird mechanic they're gonna go after it and they're gonna try it and those can be either the best players you have or they can be the worst players you have Mm -hmm. (laughs) and i feel like so much of it has to do with attitude of the player as well where if they're doing it to show like ah i'm better or Mm -hmm. my character's better or you know what have you they're doing it out of a a mean spirit or a, a narcissistic tendency yeah it becomes a lot less fun where if someone wants to, you know, take down a Tarrasque because they have this great idea of crowdsourcing it. I, you know, and if, the rest the other of the player, party is yeah. If the other players are all about it, as the DM, you pretty much have to say, oh, okay, let's do this. Mm-hmm. And so for me, with these munchkin mechanics, I really like to kind of take my cue from the party in a lot of ways, where if everyone's real excited about it, this is a story we're all going to tell in three or four years about like, <laughs> do you remember that game where we <laughs> astral arrowed this person and they disappeared? All right, I'm 100% on board with that. Uh, if it's that guy doing right. that guy stuff <laughs> <And> again. <laughs> Robert, you were saying, before we started recording, you were saying that I had experienced this before. And I, I, I think that you probably have. I'm sure that, I, I feel like I would have done something like this before. And <laughs> as, a, as a DM, I know I've done stuff like this as, as far as kind of handling these kinds of requests, like the salt. I would love to do something like that. Just be, I would love to see the look on a player's face. Like, okay, well, you can't just summon, you know, a, you know, a ten by forty foot wall salt in like an emergent shop. You have to go out like in a field and do that. Okay? <laughs> they go and they do that, and then they'll, well, you can't move it. You have to go and negotiate terms. They mm-hmm. go and negotiate terms, and they come back, and everybody's come and stolen their salt. Right? Like, There's just like a whole herd of deer there licking it. <laughs> just the, the crestfallen look on their face like oh I didn't think it all the way through you know? it turns out beholders love salt yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Like, so, something where to encourage that creativity but it, it's not carte blanche to, to break a campaign yeah. It's, yeah it's kind of going back and forth and, and, but it encourages creativity in the DM and the other players too Yeah. and to your point it makes it memorable which is That's true. super important uh, I do remember where I've experienced similar munchkinning. Was it me? No, it was, it was, I I played an adventure league. Uh, I think I mentioned this. Is it the flips? Yes. Okay. So it was a character who, or a a player who really enjoyed, I don't know. He was just so stoked about it being his turn. And he would be like, okay, I'm going to flip over this thing and I'm going to jump on that thing. And I use my, (laughs) uh, I think he was using a yo-yo as his 
as his uh, attack. And he was just like, can I, can I just switch out my whip and make it a yo-yo? You know, to a certain extent, this stuff is, it's, it's mostly him being excited about his character. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing wrong with that. Where it gets weird is when he's like, I'm going to jump over that wild boar and in front of the next one and hit it with my yo-yo and then turn around and tie something onto this other thing. And he's, he's pushing the boundaries of what's realistic in a, in a turn. Mm-hmm. And that's similar munchkining in so much as it's, he's, he's, he's pushing the boundaries um, specifically of how, what can you do in a turn. And the question becomes, what is artistic license in describing how your character moves across the room, and what is them trying to glom on to unfair mechanical advantage? Yeah, yeah. And I don't think this guy was trying to be unfair. Mm -hmm. I genuinely think he just really enjoyed it being his turn, and he loved describing all of the things that his character was doing. Yeah. Um, He probably would have enjoyed being in a smaller group because we were playing with like six players, six or seven players in a DM. Mm -hmm. In a group where it was like three players, he probably would tone that down shortly after doing it a couple times because he'd be like, oh, okay, I've I've seen enough spotlight. I can can hand off the spotlight now. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) My, uh, I guess my other thought is that uh, especially if you're struggling with, uh, with, Players being aggressively munchkiny, hmm. having a world that's equally as munchkiny specifically <laughs> to them has become one of my favorite techniques for dealing with them. Uh, Tucker's Kobolds, I believe, was the, one of the. Have you guys heard of this one? I no. Uh, no. There's a, apparently an internet famous DM named Tucker. And Tucker was playing with like a 15th level party. They'd gone against oh. every monster in the book. They played together for 10 years. And he was like, all right. What if I play my monsters smart instead of numerous? So the players come up on a cave, and the cave is, you know, a hundred yards long is the opening stretch. And what the kobolds had done is they'd dug tunnels on either side of the main drag there with arrow slits and just a metric piss ton of crossbows. (laughs) (laughs) So this 15th level party comes out of the first room of the dungeon uh, just covered in arrows, bleeding profusely. <laughs> uh, they put a couple traps in there. They had poison. It's like, all right, no. These guys have built themselves a tiny fortress in the hills. They're not just going to let you walk through the first hundred yards of their <laughs> castle unaccosted. Um, and so ever since, uh, this party then apparently feared kobolds. Uh, <laughs> because, you know, when your level 15 wizard almost dies, spell book in hand, <laughs> you get real scared. <laughs> I love it so much. <laughs> Uh, and I feel like that's, I don't know, such a great way of like, you know, your monsters can be just as mean as your players. Um, and even mm. maybe a little bit meaner because Lord only knows where that goblin got an enchanted mace from, but he's sure been practicing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and <clears throat> if your players enjoy that sort of mechanic, then throwing it back at them will probably make them enjoy like seeing it from the other side as well. The, mm-hmm. uh I don't know. I'm 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 feeling like I I don't throw enough stuff at my players. Robert, I think it's a fine line because I, I, it's maybe it's something you want to ramp up to. Mm-hmm. Um, well, sure. You've thrown some stuff at us, and then we got, had some trust issues for a while there. Where yeah, we constantly thought we we're going to be deceived. Or, um, yeah, I and tricked. I learned from that. I'm rerunning that same campaign with a new group, and I've taken out all of the deception. 
and like I said, I think maybe you want to ramp it up because personally, I enjoy that. I enjoy well, sure. that, that questioning. Like, and I don't want to take it for granted that I can just believe every NPC that we run across. Because right? <laughs> that gets kind of bland after a little mm-hmm. while. Yeah, that's um, the problem. And then I, I feel good when I know that I, I decided to trust somebody and it paid off. And then I, right. I feel entertained and I decided to trust somebody mm-hmm. and it didn't pay off. And I got, <laughs> I got, you know, I was deceived. But um, yeah, anything else, it's going to be a ramping up process, but also feeling out your party and all mm. of that. Uh, but I, I, I could listen to these stories for hours. <laughs> I've got a lot more. Uh, I've got... Uh do you have I'm more? Sure I have a few more floating around my head, but I'll be uh, I'll be a monkey's uncle if I can pull them on out. <laughs> nah, that's all right. We might have to do a second uh, second version of this. If you if you come up with more, we'll, we will we will do more. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I guess I I've got one more, and this is a more quirky magic item than munching mechanic. But my first dungeon I ever designed, uh, one of the very first rooms had a really bright silver door in it, um, and it was kind of the clear way through to the the next portion of the dungeon. And what the players generally uh, didn't realize is that this door was unlocked. Um, the thing is with this door, though, is that this door will do anything you do to it twice over. So if you start trying to pick the door, your hands are just going to get covered in scratches that get worse and worse as you're trying to pick the lock. <laughs> if you're hypothetically a go get barbarian who decides to roll a natural 20 on your, <laughs> your roll to break the door... Or your character dies. <laughs> that was an unfortunate first experience for one buddy of mine, but thankfully I knew him well enough, and he was good, good tempered enough, and good humored enough to uh, to roll with it. And the rest of the party learned very soon after <laughs> the value of keeping health potions around. <laughs> checking the handle, see what's unlocked. Like- mm-hmm. <laughs> Absolutely, um, because there's a lot of assumptions that get made, and so I think uh, an equal part of Munchkin mechanics is playing with uh, playing with people's assumptions and. See That's what true. they, what they think something's gonna be. I'm, I'm, I would love to use that door, but now anybody who listens I'm to this knows about that door. <laughs> it's, it's, can cut that out. It'll, it'll show up someday. I'm, I'm gonna use it eventually. Anyway, uh, I think we're gonna say that we've talked about this enough. Would you say that? Thank you so much for sharing the stories. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you guys for I having me. I really enjoyed them. <laughs> I definitely want to hear more. Yes. <laughs> and I'm sure we will. Next time, we'll discuss murder hobos and how players become murder hobos. As always, if you have comments or suggestions, reach out to us on Twitter at Dungeon underscore Tangent or go to our website, DungeonsAndTangents.net. That's all for this episode. Thanks for joining us. 